Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. Good morning, it's Sarah Carey here sitting in for Ivan for Yates on Sunday with the best analysis of the week's news, politics, business and sport. Coming up, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar says it's not up to Ireland to design a border solution for Brexiteers. Is he right to talk straight or would a little more diplomacy serve us better in the long run? The gender pay gap storm unleashed by the BBC continues to escalate and RTE has asked Kieran Mulvey to investigate how women are paid. And the former president of the University of Limerick, Dr Edward says he's going to hand back his honorary doctorate to the NUI in protest at the one conferred on former Taoiseach Brian Cowan this week. We'll be discussing that and more with our panel this morning. And then after 12 o'clock, my guest for the big interview is communications consultant Terry Prone, how her father didn't speak to her for three years when she and the love of her life, Tom Savage, announced their intention to marry while he was leaving the priesthood. And at 12.30, Richie Boucher will be talking to Peter Canavan. You can text the show five. 3106 30 cent for your texts and in studio with me to review the papers a very warm welcome to you all Nicola Talents is the investigations editor with the Sunday World Harry Brown is a lecturer in journalism in DIT and Eamon Delaney is executive director of the Hibernia Forum and Eamon that apparently that's an independent advocacy group dedicated to the principles of a free market individual liberty and responsible and prudent government I think we can't argue with too much of that Spot we might get into there, it yeah. you guessed as much <laughs> I'll do some of the headlines on the papers first before we get um, down and dirty into them. The Irish Sunday people, why I'll never forgive myself. That's Kerry Katona talking, saying uh, kids lived in constant fear during um, her most recent marriage. The Irish Sunday mirror and in jungle comeback. And this is Ant McPartland of Ant and Deck, who's been in rehab, but he's hoping to come back uh, to celebrate the jungle show. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. And I love those two guys. I hope he uh, makes a full recovery. They're great TV personalities. The Sunday World, Nicola's paper. He'll kill again. Psycho killer Alan Cawley posed as a doctor in a sickening plot to drive a vulnerable fellow inmate to suicide while on remand for double murder. The Irish male, uh, they lead with Blondie Kofi. Uh, she's wading in, as they say, to the RTE gender pay row. Being a woman in RTE is not easy. I'd say being a woman anywhere isn't fantastic at the best of times. We'll be getting on to that. The Sunday Independent budget war as Varadkar vows to hike pension. And this is a policy um, difference between Leo Varadkar and Fianna Fáil leader Michal Martin. Varadkar says he wants to um, increase the old age pension ahead of the rate of inflation. Michal Martin is saying, no, any spare money should go to uh, people who are carers and those receiving state-supported disability payments. Um, I'm not sure if it is a full-on war, but I guess time will tell. The Sunday Times, abortion vote plan angers pro-choice side. This is a proposal that the abortion vote will be held in midsummer. And uh, Orlo O'Connor, director of the National Women's Council, is saying that would mean a lot of young people would have gone abroad to work during the summer and those votes would be missing, so they don't like that. And the Sunday Business Post, builders and bankers unite to save... 20k buyers grant AIB boss says housing measures will take years to boost supply and the housing agency head wanted a grant of only a few thousand euros um, lots of detail there so what will we kick off with actually Harry you are going off somewhere after the show to a football match why don't you just tell us about that <laughs> I first? am yes I'm involved in an organisation called Gaza Action Ireland and for the second year running we've brought a group of children from the Gaza Strip uh, very difficult journey uh, they've arrived yesterday morning 
10 to 14 year old boys from Al Halal Football Academy and they had a bunch of games around the Rings End and Sandy Mount area today they're at Ballybrack Ballybrack Football Club uh, they'll have some games there they're going to Manor Hamilton to Kinvara to Limerick to Cork during the week so watch uh, Gaza Action Ireland on Twitter or on Facebook to find out the events in your area uh, donate if you can because it's a very expensive proposition but really it's a, it's been a, last year certainly it was really magic uh, I missed yesterday because I was abroad myself actually but the uh, they're lovely boys, lovely footballers. If you like seeing a very different style of play from what we're used to seeing on Irish pitches, uh, you know the, the way you learn to play on a beach in Gaza is different from the way you learn to play on a muddy field. And uh, yeah, in I imagine. Poland. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the that's what I'm doing next. Very good. Um, Eamon Delaney. So Leo Varadkar's made headlines um, twice this week. Uh, once um, on this issue of the he's not designing a border for Brexiteers, mm. and uh, the British don't have a right to be angry. We're the ones who should be angry at what they've done to us. So a few comments today in the papers about whether or not he was wise to speak so directly. Lee's hand in the Sunday Times says uh, Leo's outburst on Brexit is bordering on genius. What did you make of it? I didn't read Lisa's uh, piece. Uh, I, I, I went on about genius um, but I think it's refreshing and it, it energises debate. I thought fair play to him on a human level uh, because the, the consequences for the border and the splitting of this island uh, were never really fully explored during the debate itself, certainly not explored in Britain, where they don't seem to give a fiddlers, especially in the Conservative Party. Uh, and this goes right back even before the Brexit debate. There's been a winding down of involvement and engagement since the Good Friday Agreement, the high of that. So Brexit really... Exactly, uh, drives that and we're also waking up to the fact that many unionists like Ian Paisley Jr for example probably the main reason they went for Brexit was to create a bigger border and more division you know mm. so Leo's calling that out I thought it was very odd that he was immediately criticised by some Fianna Fáil people uh, I, John Drennan has a report that Darrell O'Brien criticised him I saw Timmy Dooley in a tweet criticising him because my first thought was this is kind of Fianna Fáil language and this is what they do they throw shapes at the Brits you know especially <laughs> over the border and Stephen Donnelly who is a considered kind of consultant like um, input, new intake into Fianna Fáil had been saying that so I think revealingly this Stephen might be realising he's in a much more tribal party than he'd bargained for which is all about depressingly uh, just kicking Fianna Gael whereas Fianna Gael just kicked Fianna Fáil so we're back to that punch and Judy politics but that party political confusion aside it's interesting it is however just to, to, to mm-hmm. finish on this really is risky you know like we have to get around the British are um, uh, you know I'm reading a book on the Irish Civil War at the moment and the delusions about the, the matchup between us and Britain Britain can turn around and play ugly on this we don't care a border goes up we don't really care about Good Friday Agreement the IRA are not really going to come back because bear in mind there, there's a car crash going on continuously in London and in Brussels to do with Britain and Brexit so we just have to be careful I've been a diplomat as you know I was five years in, in our three years in the Anglo-Irish Division and seven years broader and um, I've been at the UN it's a lonely place for a small country and you know mentioned the Brits you know no one cares so but I thought fair play to him though like they're doing nothing in Britain so he just said you fix the border you you made the mess. It's a tricky one to navigate, uh, Nicola Talent, because sometimes I feel when it comes to the Brexiteers, this cult that has just taken over the Tory party and British government, it's a little bit like North Korea. You know, rationality doesn't seem to have anything to do with these negotiations. They don't care if they end up crashing out, or so it would appear. So how do you negotiate with them? 
And, I mean, my God, do we need to negotiate with them? Because if you have a look today in the Sunday Business Post, Jack Horgan-Jones has done a big piece about the border and what's going on up there and what effects this is going to have. Um, You know, the border is an industrial and a manufacturing powerhouse. There's lots of big, big companies up there that are employing people from the north. They have the kind of basic challenges of, you know, how are people going to physically get over the border if there's some difficulties or time, time constraints there? How are they going to pay the PRSI, the tax for their workers? You have Kingspan, you have Lakeland Dairies, these huge businesses up around there and they're going to be hugely affected. They're also talking about, you know, that this border is going to undo years of work that's already been there and it's going to set us back both here and in the north. So we do have to sort of somehow work out we can't wash our hands of it and say leave it to to the Brits to do what they want but we really have to get involved here and you know for the sake of business and the economy. Um, Harry can you see a return of the border or do you think at some point people realise this is just crazy and the whole thing has to stop. I think it's impossible to say that people will eventually realise it's crazy and stop it. We're not in that kind of political environment anymore, and surely. It could be, you know, return of the smugglers, you know. Some people might find some benefit in it. I think the politics of this intervention by Varadkar are really interesting because it seems to me that you only do this if you're the Taoiseach, the Fine Gael leader in particular, bash the Brits in this way, if you know that it's utter chaos over on the other side and it has no political cost right. and it, it has political benefit and I, he hasn't had a great first few weeks in fairness and this is a pretty easy kind of a line to take in the context of the Brits are uh, such an obvious mess right now the partner that uh, we might be having to deal with in negotiations isn't hasn't found the table let alone taken the seat at it so uh, and it, it could be, well be the case that we'll be looking I'm, at a new British um, government I noticed months. Phil Hogan was speaking on country wide on Radio 1 yesterday and he had a go with them as well saying that the United Kingdom still has to come to terms with their negotiating mandate and um, it beggars belief to see the type of inconsistency and lack of coordination that we see at the moment from the UK side and Michel Barnier was having a cut at them more diplomatically during the week I wondered was there an element of coordination where I think you know we're going to stand up we're not going to be nice uh, to the UK they need to be told where to go I, d- I don't think so. I just no? jump in there I don't think so I think yeah. Hogan is on an interesting journey actually I've met him going out to Brussels he is very much Brussels now you know yeah. and he speaks from Brussels perspective He's uh, and that perspective is oh well that uh, perspective uh, cri- is there uh, criticising oh totally oh yeah. delusional yeah. like he just came out very interesting actually his journey because you know we think of the EU as France and Germany but he was up in Baltic states and Denmark yeah. and all and it is delusional I think he's pointing out what Harry's described as the chaos and lack of reality from the, his side but I think Leo is on more it's not a solo run because we must remember the trajectory of this Coveney came out and said that the border should be at the Irish Sea. Now that's a little bit provocative, I thought. I, I just because uh, I think historically in this country we still have a problem getting used to unionism as a phenomenon. We still have this delight. You're all deluded. Get over yourselves and either join us or go back to Somerset. I really still believe that we have that. So I think <laughs> Coveney thinks you can just. I mean, what's it going to do for a million prods in Northern Ireland? Like it, it, your border starts here. So in a way, Leo was kind of rather loyally shoring up his colleague, but also taking it to a further, further thing. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's right. Uh, yeah. the, um, I think there's a certain extent that the license to do it is coming from Brussels and is coming mm-hmm. from the likes of Hogan. So, that, so without saying it's coordination, I think we can say that there's a broad culture of you know throwing our hands in the air at the very least and maybe some other gestures in there as well at what the Brits are bringing and not bringing to this situation at the moment. I do think that a border at the Irish Sea is 
is clearly the logical uh, end of this. There's no question about that. But obviously, mm. that is we have a politics on mm. this island that makes that a very difficult thing to talk about. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, Eamon, one more. Well, again? just as a last point, like the border thing. I mean, Nicholas talked about there uh, quite rightly that, that, that you know how much what could come back because we had a military conflict. But if you don't have a military conflict, I don't know how difficult it is. I, I just shared this one experience with you. I had coming in from beautiful countryside of Montenegro and Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, through uh, Bosnia. And then you've got to go through the Serbian part of Bosnia, which is surreal. One man and a dog checking for passports. I mean, it's just crazy. But then I came upon Croatia. So that's it's, you're welcome to the EU. Yeah, but I tell you, it was about two men and a dog. Yeah, you know, I, I was, there are I was actually, amazed. Like, like I'm going into the EU. I'm coming from the Balkans, and it was happy days. We were in through it in a few minutes. There so, are actually a lot of little enclaves yeah. of um, tiny statelets uh, that aren't technically in the EU, but some of them are in the customs unions, and there are actually mm. arrangements all over Europe. Yeah. Um, but listen, we might move on to the other story. The one that actually has the most coverage in the papers today, Nicola Talent, is the gender pay gap. It just has not gone away. Um, where do you stand on well, this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's 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 great that it is being debated. Um, there's lots of coverage in all the papers about it. This kicked off last week over Sharon Eviola, and although she was reluctant, I think, to kind of, well, speak about her pay, but at the same time felt that it was completely unfair that she was being, being paid less than her colleagues. Um, you know, what started in the BBC has come to RTE. Unfortunately, most of us who work in the private industry don't know whether we're being unfairly paid because we don't actually know what our colleagues are being paid unless they tell us and then you have to kind of work out why they've told and whether they're telling the truth. So, you know, it's a bit difficult. It's easier in, in the public sector to be able to, to look on it and say, and we're actually seeing in the public sector that yes, women do appear to be paid across the board less than men. Um, there's some interesting pieces in the papers there today about it. Um, I noticed that in the 1980s in Ireland, the pay gap was 30% and we're now down to 14%. So, you know, that's a generational thing as women have very much gone back to work and we're now seeing families that it's it's totally the norm for both parents to be out at work. Um, 14% still is a lot of work to go to get that to zero where it should be. Um, you know. So a lot of people make the comment that um, particularly when it comes to commercially individually negotiating contracts that perhaps women are not being assertive enough in demanding value uh, for themselves. Yes and um, I think Kevin Myers has, has uh, an attitude towards that about what sort of women are capable of, of demanding. But yeah, I mean, actual studies there show that women don't, in a lot of the cases, go for these very high-powered jobs. They don't go for them in the first place. Now, I mean, just from being out there in the workforce with kids, I can understand why they don't because you sort of, you're always kind of going, oh, will I be able to take the time off for them if they're sick or if they're, there's all those things going on that despite the fact that we've an equality now that both parents are out in work, the woman still takes those responsibilities. Yeah, and Harry, that's actually one of the things that has struck me is that, you know, you can get equal pay for equal work in a, and particularly in very big organisations that have proper human resources departments and all of that. Oh, and in 
Kevin Myers piece in the Sunday Times he does make a point that I like some I disagree with but he says the human resources department used to be called personnel until people came to be considered as metabolising respiring form of mineral ore um, I, I do resent that term human resources but anyway so big organisations will usually have systems in place but what happens is the women just aren't in the big jobs yeah. in the first place to look after yeah. uh, other women I mean yeah. this uh, it's interesting that we're even having this discussion here on News Talk you know given the revolutionary situation we have a woman this morning presenting one of the prime <laughs> programs on News Talk and it's, it's really not awkward for me at all yeah, to be I, uh, I mean, talking th- about I mean, this I would argue that this station uh, uses gender almost as a marketing tool and could presents itself through its major programs as essentially a male setting and I can't imagine what the gender pay gap is like in here, but I'd say it's absolutely is that, enormous. Is that fair to news talk? Sorry, I've got to speak up on behalf of the station. I mean, Sarah McInerney is a very prominent and excellent uh, co-host of the evening programme. Kira Kelly's on with George, George Hook filling in a lot. Yeah, but Sarah McInerney is the only woman on the entire weekday schedule. You know, when you compare it to RTE, yeah. to be fair to RTE, they actually have quite a lot of women. Yeah. Um, you but know. to get to the larger structural question yeah. you raised, Stephen Kinsler has a great piece in the Sunday Business Post um, in which he's really analyzed the kind of the structural reasons for this kind of problem. And it does partly go back to what you're talking about. He uses uh, my own field, which is higher education, as a sort of a case study. And he says he's been playing the game in higher education, the academic game, on the easy setting. Doesn't mean I haven't worked hard. But people like me designed the system to help people like me succeed. Everyone else who is not like me, which is largely women, what he's talking about here, has to play the same game but on a harder setting. It's not that the goals are the same and I'm better and thus I get promoted. It's it's that people like me decided what the goals should be in the first place. And I think that that kind of understanding of how uh, sexism is a kind of a structurally, uh, socially reproduced phenomenon and happens in places like News Talk, it happens in places like the higher education system where a great number of younger lecturers are women, but it's largely men who advance to positions of management. Yeah, in in that article he says 51% of all lecturers, the introduction job level in academia are women only 21% rise to full professor the highest level now look but the argument will be there and it was you know raised by Nicola is that women don't put themselves forward for promotion because they are worried that they have their domestic duties and they're still taking on that burden of work at home so can you blame the employers Researchers did an experiment. This is uh, Stephen Kinsler. Researchers did an experiment where only the name on the CV was changed. Qualifications, etc., identical. Participants in the experiment, that is HR departments and people hiring, rated male applicants higher than identical female applicants. They were also offered higher starting salaries and more mentoring. I mean, we've seen these kind of experiments done before with ethnic names as well. And it's the same idea, racial... uh, I've seen uh, it done in in technology where they'll take a piece of code and give it to... um, a bunch of programmers to review and if they put on the top that a woman wrote the code it would be far more heavily criticised than if they put at the top that a man wrote the code so yeah. it's it's amazing now Eamon I think you might take a slightly different view on, well, on I, than the consensus I don't know I'm, I know I'm kind of sort of glazed eyed here because I, I can't believe uh, there's some I can't believe this still exists the gender pay gap and, well, um, why do you think it still exists? Why are well, we talking I about the, it then? I think Harry's right. I, I just think it's things progress, and so it's not as things are not as sexist as they were before. Um, but if fifty, like if you look at the, the Irish Convention that met after going back to civil war here yeah. after nineteen sixteen, there's about a hundred men, and they're all men. There's not a woman in it. I know there were nineteen. So you know things progress. 
but I am amazed at the gender. I'm, I'm amazed even when people, you know, even people in the libertarian sphere whom I would know through my own politics start arguing that, well, you know, uh, they might be paid less because an investment in an employer, they were, are going to get pregnant and take time off. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, like, like I would actually almost out, outdo the feminists uh, or stranded feminists yeah. by going further and saying that institutions I've worked in, women bring elements of maturity and responsibility that do not exist in their male counterparts. I'll give you an example. When I worked in the Department of Foreign Affairs and I wrote a book about it, as you know, I documented cabals and in, um, gangs of men who said all their time intriguing up from promotions as ambassadors, um, there was a lot of what I call jockstrap, macho competitor. Yeah. Like, it was just irresponsible. And then off to hurricanes. But I mean, these were senior figures and a lot of this energy went on. It was quite destabilizing. There were no women involved in this. And now, I, now you could say that's been them maybe not forceful enough. But honestly, I think they bring quality. So I just think I can't. As Carrie said, I can't believe we're still having this. But discussion. I think that's uh, the point, Nicola Talent, that a lot of um, the discussion around job opportunities and promotion takes place in a social network. And so if the men are going out to rugby matches together and socialising with each other, that's how they discover that actually they're the best guy for the job. And oh, we're at home, we're, we're, we're at home, you know, worrying I about the kids. I think women go out together too and, and yeah. socialise together too, certainly in the, in the work in, in environment. On the that business of, you know, maternity leave and all the rest of it, they have found that women who take career breaks never recover financially when they go back to work. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely never. Um, so, I mean, that has to be something. I think empowerment is, is, we have to empower ourselves to go out and look for this. And I do think as well, I agree with you completely that it's, a, you know, it, it's happening. It's, it's mm. times are changing. We would be the first generation. I think women in their 30s, 40s were out working. We're probably the first generation that are out working full time along with our partners out working full time mm. in the home. Now, hopefully the next generation, our own kids will be brought up, the men will be brought up to sort of share the duties a little bit more because that's certainly what I hear complaints from my female counterparts. They feel they have to do it all. They have to do it all at home as well. But maybe those men that would be our generation's partners were reared in a different way and our children will grow to totally share that duty at home and hopefully by whatever we're talking about that, that that next will go from 14% down to zero. So Harry, yeah. is it the fault of the husbands, not the employers? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it seems it seems to me that there's a, a, a kind of a... It's funny that we've started this conversation talking about a very small group of elite women in RTE yeah. on six-figure mm, salaries. Yeah. I think it's important to understand that part of what's been happening in the economy over the last 20 or 30 years, as more women have come into the workplace, we've also seen a rise in precariousness, uh, you know, a, a greater difficulty for young people to get onto an employment ladder where oh, their oh, pay but that's, rises. that's flexibility, Flexibility, Harry. of course. Flexibility. Yeah, people yeah. want flexibility. Sure, but that, I mean, I think that also disproportionately falls on women, but of course it affects everybody. And the, and the fight for a fairer workplace is not just about a fight for Sharon Nuvolan to get the same pay as Brian Dobbs. See, the RT one is Amen. an odd one to introduce mm. just because, of course, what you're really looking at RT is that here's this loss-making you know, state broadcasting company still imposing a tax on all of us. And that's something that really gets me that we have to pay a license fee when in this era of multifaceted media, the Sunday World, the Sunday Independent, News Talk, you name it. 
but but and yet they can still pay these superstar salaries to people, but not gender. I mean, if you if you look, not necessarily gender gap. I mean, if you look, for example, at Prime Time, Gabe McCullough is on a fraction of what Marie McCallaghan's on, so it doesn't necessarily fall in a gender way. Yeah. You know, so RT is perhaps uh, not the usual one to, to look at this. Can I just say though, I think the difference in gender pay gap, which I would share everyone's views on, and I think it's outrageous that it still goes on. I would be a bit more skeptical on the gender quota thing of. I think it's absolutely essential not to have all male panels or I don't even think all female panels just for the listener or the reader. But this, I do find sometimes it becomes a little bit monofocus when it's just everybody calling out, oh, look at that, there's only two women. You know, things are moving along and sometimes on certain spheres of topics it's hard to get women just like in some times it's hard to get men you know that's not hard. the afternoon shows on TV3 it's all women yeah you know, I so. have to um, take a break now but there was a panel at the Institute of International and European Affairs did a conference on Brexit a few weeks ago so they invited in all the editors of the Irish newspapers mm. so you know the invitation was to the editors of Irish newspapers and they were all men all yeah, of them and they was, were lined up there were I seven we were of them, them together. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. The, and the shame of that was an excellent half day discussion yeah. but the spin was immediately because in the room you had strong and forceful women in media that both of us would know that we'd yeah, all would know yeah. and they were like tweeting like hell and, yeah. Yeah, it looked, it just looked bad of course bad. it did yeah. Yates on Sunday brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy proud to power businesses all over Ireland energy at work for you and welcome back to Yates on Sunday. Yates is away. You might see photographs of him in today's paper um, attending his daughter's wedding. And I'm Sarah Carey filling in for him. And in studio with me, Nicola Talent is the investigations editor with The Sunday World. Harry Brown is a lecturer in journalism and DIT. And Eamon Delaney is executive director of the Hibernia Forum and some of your texts. Um, Ireland is only a small country is an opt-out expression for any failings. There are 12 much smaller in the EU, but Leo stands up to be counted. Well done, Leo. And that was Leo uh, criticising the British government's approach to the Brexit negotiations and on what we should do about the border. Darren from Dublin 15 says we should build a wall. Um, Pat in Dublin uh, talking about the pay gap uh, says the pay gap between public and private sector is more important than the gender pay gap. Women may be treated as second class citizens but we in the private sector are third class. Look at the difference in USC, social welfare entitlements, pension entitlements. The pensions is the big one. Uh, retirement ages, accountability and productivity, job security goes on and on. Edin Clondalkin says, are you saying that a girl from Mount Anvil School is disadvantaged compared to a boy from inner city Dublin? Really, that's where the real discrimination is and that's what needs to be addressed. And to be fair, Harry said, there's a big class issue here. Paul says, the gender pay gap doesn't exist. It is against the law to pay an employee more based on gender for the same work. Men work longer hours and more dangerous jobs than women. 97% of fatalities in the workplace are men. Um, Very high fatalities amongst farmers actually so that would include men I don't hear the ladies trying to even up that gap well they are trying to get into the guards and the army and all these things chipping a nail in an air conditioned office isn't the worst thing that can happen here I chipped my thumbnail yesterday and it's quite deep and it's going to take a while to go out don't underestimate um, the trauma of a chipped nail Um, Pat in Dublin says women living on average 10 years longer than men that's the biggest gender discrimination possible oh I'm sorry we live too long. <laughs> Hanging around to annoy you. Sorry, Pat. And uh, what about car insurance uh, for women? Where is the gender balance? That was the only thing we had. It was cheaper car insurance because we are yeah, safer drivers. Yeah. And bloody EU comes along and says, oh, that's discrimination. Mm. So um, the one thing we had, they took. Um, right. What's next? Brian Cowan. 
accepted an honorary doctorate from the NUI during the week. And I began to feel sorry for him, Nicola Talent, because the outrage. The outrage. It was heavy going mm. and is in many of the papers today. Um how do you feel about it? Well, I mean, I think he just probably popped his head up too early, did he? Mm, you know, um, these honorary doctorates are, are sort of marketing tools for universities and they give them to celebrities or famous people to get coverage in newspapers and presumably to get coverage of the courses that are available in their universities. This was just a bit of a marketing disaster, to say the least. I know they've given it to former Taoiseach and all the rest of it, but um, I don't know. It just didn't go down very well with anyone. Not the students. You know, Twitter was full of people that had had received uh, doctorates and masters and various things from the university and were so outraged that he was getting one that they were talking about giving them back. Uh, yeah, Ed Walsh has said that he's going to give he's going to give his back. Yeah. Um, you know, it just. So know, the so the debate is, Cowan was he just unlucky that he was the guy that was there when the whole thing imploded, that everybody was behind it and he was the guy actually sitting in the chair and that the fairest thing you can say about him is, well, when it did implode, he did take control and he did implement the policies um, that built the recovery. But unfortunately for him, he wasn't around when the recovery started to happen. So he's only remembered for the bad, you know. So, I mean, you know, he wasn't there. So, like, he is literally, he just was, his timing was pretty poor. Mm. But Eamon, but the flip side of that is, well, he wasn't Taoiseach when all this was being built up. He was the Minister for Finance. And Charlie McCreevy got hopped over to Brussels Mm. because he had seen how things were going and was trying to rein back in spending. Mm. And that was not the Bertie plan. The Bertie plan was keep spending. Matt Cooper goes into it in some detail Mm. in his Sunday Business Post column today. And um, so Charlie was flicked off to Brussels. Cam was put in and spend, spend, Mm. spend. Mm. So he does Absolutely. Well, on both of those... Yeah. Things you there you've absolutely nailed it. In fact, yeah. you've made it superfluous. I mean, seriously, no, you <laughs> no, you have. I'm paying because you've just succinctly put it. The two sides. One is he, as Nicholas said, he was the unlucky man. The crash did happen on his watch. However, he was minister for finance. He was doing nothing to stop Bertinomics as, mm. as they were as we're really going over a cliff. And uh, he did he did put then he did put the monster budgets take the cuts there I don't know if Fine Gael would have that stomach for that but everyone the car crash was happening but um, so I think on Cowan like just on this issue it's it's a bit odd um, it's terrible he's demonised but it's kind of it was kind of not great optics and Bertie's beside him I thought that was interesting someone there was a joke on Twitter about that they, 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 once again the father of the bride does not look happy with the bride's dress <laughs> and it was, it was just it was, just, it was brilliant because it looked like the nervous uh, father of the bride so I think as Nicola said and a great phrase there actually Nicola I must borrow that and use it I'm stealing lots of good lines today <laughs> he popped his head up too early but you see he's done nothing Should he have refused Well it? you see he's done nothing to redeem see Bertie's working hard at the re- reputation the Brexit thing and we had him at an event and he spoke very well on Brexit he's good on that stuff Cowan's kind of done nothing so all you're seeing is just Biffo coming back up again in the gown now he's not a great explainer I was kind of surprised at his appearance I thought he'd really I thought he had been working on and not been yeah. it's not even sexist this is maybe 
a physical thing. I thought he's only a year older than me or something. Really? Uh, yeah, I know. Mm. I know. That's I'm looking good, am I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, you know. A year or two, that's all, you know. Do you know what you're like? If I go to the Blessing of the Graves or events like that <laughs> and all the grannies and granddads are sitting around looking at everybody else arrive and they're all going, mm. I look way better. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Can I make a serious point in the back of yes, this, though? Yeah. The dangers this may happen again. The other big story today, yeah. and we've been warning about this with Hibernia Forum and I've been warning about it in articles, although I welcomed his uh, succession, Faradkar wants to increase the pension every year yes. in line with inflation. Are we looking at the new Bertie? Have we learned anything? Are we just going to ramp up spending? Look at all the areas that we have to spend money on that didn't exist in Bertie or Cowan's time. You know, just uh, special needs, huge bill there. Yeah, we Pensions covered time that. bomb. Yeah. yeah, you covered that. And yeah. I'm, I'm, on, on, so I'm talking about my yeah. talking point uh, programme so, yesterday. So really, yeah. when, and, and, and Neve Horrigan and many others have written very well about this, there's a demographic uh, uh, gap breaking up an unfairness if you like a younger generation getting hammered you go millennials don't have jobs forced to immigrate and uh, we know the elderly are often vulnerable but a lot of the elderly are not so no means testing just give them a pension every year because they vote so Leo are you the new Garrett or the new Bertie or are you the fearless person Help uh, yeah, and that working. front page Sunday Independent story saying that Michal Martin is the one yes. saying no. Yeah. Yeah. Fianna so look like, might look like fiscal restraint. After Harry, all. I'm sure you've plenty to say about this. Yeah, I, I guess I do. And one thing I want to sort of push back against yeah. in relation to the myth of Cowan and what he did wrong is this idea that the problem was he spent and spent and that this was somehow Bertinomics or something like that. Yeah. The fact is it was there to spend. We had some of the lowest deficits in the EU. The, the idea that somehow an economy that was... Uh, you know, bubbling like Ireland's one is one where the finance minister should, uh, you know, refuse to spend that money, I think is f- so the, the idea that Brian Cowan is more to blame for the crisis than the, what was happening in the German economy and what German banks were doing to to inflate the Irish economy seems to me to be ridiculous. Um, but I have some other feelings as well. Which partly it's because Brian Cowan was back in the day when he was a politician, an active politician, he was loved by the media. He was really one of the real favorites. He was seen as kind of a bright, technocratic, you know, one of the lads would have a drink with you and tell you stories. And uh, one of the very few times that I was ever criticized by an editor for a personal attack on a politician, it was because I made a mildly disparaging remark about Brian Cowan. I had an editor come back to me and say, oh, no, he's the best and the brightest. This is back in the early 2000s. And when he was in health, he got very good coverage. When he was foreign affairs, he was foreign minister at the time of 9-11. Ireland was on the Security Council. And he absolutely reneged on any responsibility to introduce uh, any notion of a kind of a more restrained response from the United States to 9-11. So I think that that Brian Cowan has a record. And one of the things that really made my blood boil, actually, in the uh, during the week was that one of the reasons that he was praised, you know, people who were trying to kind of avoid the crisis question said, you know, when he was health minister, he put a lot of money into intellectual disability. You know, and this is the question of, you know, spend. And maybe some people would say that that was birdie-nomics. But the fact is that the situation for people with intellectual disabilities, children and adults with intellectual disabilities in this country is a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. Still. Down syndrome Ireland just still and was, you know, very little was changed in his time. And Down syndrome Ireland just recently said people are waiting 
waiting years. Children are waiting years for speech and language therapy. That means human beings are never going to have the rights to be able to read, to write, to speak vindicated by our society. You know, that's not, you know, waiting years for speech and language therapy means you never get to fulfill your potential. And to see Brian Cowan getting credit for somehow transforming the situation for people with intellectual disabilities in this country when it's such an utter disgrace and inhuman disgrace, that really, really uh, was the worst thing about this. Whereas kind of blaming him for the crisis, it seems to me, is misguided. Um, and, and separately, um, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform issued a report. We don't need to go too much into it now, but we discussed it yesterday in Talking Point. We're now spending more on special needs education than we do on third level education. Um, now, there's a whole thing about should you even frame it like that. But um, but that was uh, uh, that huge increase has come in the last few years. It wasn't under Brian Cowan's point. So, you, you know, your, your point yeah, stands. Amen. So I agree with yeah. uh, Harry very much in the first. I thought that was yeah. very inter- interesting that he reminded us of that, that cosy relationship he had with journalists. I remember, especially as foreign minister, uh, he was a great mimic, apparently. And I said, well, I haven't heard the mimicry, uh, but you're not in the club, Eamon. Mm. You're not in Leinster House. And that annoyed me. And, and there was a terrible arrogance set in. So when he got the job... Uh, he was like, this well, is, what this I is used easy to hear. peasy. He didn't know there was a car. Lehman Brothers, there was a big crash coming. So I agree with Harry yeah. Party on that. Although spending, you're not, you're, this is not responsible spending. There was responsible spending. This is also benchmarking. This is also insane spending. On the second thing, I think he's a little bit harsh in that the, this, the, the disability and, uh, you know, the, the crisis there and the funding, the long waiting lists are not necessarily his legacy they could also be every other minister's legacy of course. and the current one yeah, and but also, he was singled out yeah, as if but, he'd but achieved something the when the situation so we got the highest house spends by per capita in the OECD what's going on here consultants management taking the money also trade unions Harry in fairness you know old work practice which don't exist in private uh, hospitals have to exist in public so the money is frittered away so like this guy has been well off the off the field now for, for, for a number of years so yeah uh, um, uh, t- Tony has just texted, texted in and said so much for you people in the media you all rabbited on about how clever Cowan was who's clever now I, Nicola that was the narrative that I used to hear from a journalist saying oh he is so intelligent mm, this is mm. the smartest guy you know in the doll we've seen in this generation um, up against that then was the the kind of perception that maybe he was drinking a bit and there was the whole row about the interview he did on Morning Ireland as well. That kind of clouded things afterwards. But this idea of him being the cleverest um, of them all was was very prevalent amongst the media. Well, he wasn't, he just wasn't too clever and nor were the people, anyone who's left around him when he decided, I mean, in this one, I think half of what has annoyed everybody is this ridiculous image of him in his purple gown or his purple sash and the hat on his head and, you know, getting this great accolade for all he's done. Like, he should have re brought himself back to the public with a bit of an apology, which he did in fairness, actually. Yeah. He said he was, you know, he was sorry for, he deep regret, he said, actually, at the loss of employment uh, for so many people. But he should have said that without the sort of the clown outfit on him, really, you know, and in a totally different forum. And then maybe down the road he could have got his honorary doctorate. But anyway, there's just a bit of a. Um, a Harry Potter sequel. <laughs> a, a final quick point Stephen O'Brien has a big piece in the Sunday Times, and he's talking 
talking about the whole idea of honorary doctorates in the first place, that this is how we choose to honour people because we don't have a state honours system. Um, you know, and well, I, well, he was talking about, you know, people like Father Peter McFerry, instead of giving them an honorary doctorate well, or the freedom, the freedom of, of the city. Yeah. Do you think that's enough? Thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, the honorary doctorates are just, I'm sure for anybody who's actually done a doctorate, yeah. I'm sure they're bloody annoying no matter who's getting them. Because, and then uh, the results, you know, if the, your year is studying and then some puncher comes in and yeah. gets handed it, it's there just... There was always the it, gap between the people then who insisted on being called right, doctor. Right, and right, I think right. famously, Tony mm. O'Reilly was the worst. Right, and he's do- insist- Dr. Michael Smurf, isn't he? Yeah. Keen, I think as well. And you know? then Peter Sutherland was offered one and someone said to him, and would you like us to call you doctor? Mm. And he said, don't be ridiculous. Mm. So, yeah. uh, it, so it, some people... It just can't yeah. be good for Fianna Fáil either. Not that we care mm. so much, but it, just a pair of them looking there, it's, yeah, it's kind of... Right. Can I just say that I do, I do think, that I just said the last word very quick, I do think he was very clever, but I think the, the arrogance and the, the kind of depression set in, and I do think there is a smartness there, but it was buried... And it came out very Actually, wasn't very it interesting? I always thought the contrast in personality between himself and Enda Kenny, that um, when Enda came in, so he got the country with the IMF there mm. after 40 years, you know, getting up the, the ladder, he finally gets the job. But his personality was just the absolute opposite. He just really took to it. And mm. I've spoken to uh, senior civil servants who will say the difference was just extraordinary. This kind of sullen, withdrawn Taoiseach and suddenly this guy comes in and fine, he's high-fiving and he's being driven and that. But it made an actual mm. difference. It really, really did. I think that that Harry. attitude of journalists towards Cowan actually contributed to that, gave him mm. partly an idea that he was mm. above having to communicate with oh, ordinary yeah. people. That there was a sense whenever he did deign to go on the radio and talk that his task was to make it clear that the smart people were in charge not to explain not to justify not to defend it was simply to in a sense to kind of and this during the good times it worked perfectly well to kind of pour the emollient of his intelligence over whatever issue it was that he was talking about even if it meant that it was kind of gibberish Yates on Sunday brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. And welcome back to Yates on Sunday. I'm Sarah Carey filling in for Ivan and in studio with me, Nicola Talent, Harry Brown and Eamon Delaney. And there are piles of texts coming in on the whole gender pay gap issue. Um, uh, Gender pay gap is a load of tripe, says a texter. Pay gap figures spouted by the media as an average pay gap difference over all jobs, e.g. women do... Men do more dangerous jobs where the pay is quite high. If the pay gap existed in the public sector, bigger companies, why not just hire all women? Pay less for the same work done, but this doesn't happen. Um, People who say it's illegal to pay someone less based on gender do not understand the private sector. People are paid whatever they can negotiate and all the evidence proves that men are paid more. And that's down to that thing about confidence and assertiveness in negotiating. And David says, Cowan's nonsense about the country's finances and then turned the last days of his government into a laughing stock, not to mention the famous radio interview at the time. And let me see, and Bertie must be due an honorary bank account at this stage, me thinks. <laughs> um, there's a grateful pensioner. Brian Cowan did well by us pensioners as well as the struggling welfare recipients. I'll always be grateful for the buffer he built us. Um, there's a really interesting long-term um, study done of older people in the country called TILDA. And um, they uh, surveyed them and half of pensioners um, give some kind of money or financial help uh, to their uh, sons and daughters. It was 
the younger yeah. generation who struggled yes. most during the crisis. Mm. And so the pensioners were the mm-hmm. ones actually helping out their adult children. So maintaining the old age pension was actually a huge and benefit through the economy. And I think yeah. that's why there wasn't a big revolution against what pensioners were getting because they were literally distributing yeah, it to their to their families. Also always remember that people forget t- hundreds of thousands of people have left the country since the crash yeah. and they're all mainly young. Yeah. Yeah, they don't vote, and yeah. they're forgotten about, and they're economically extradited. That's the phrase I would use. It's harsh, but really, and I think that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and sure. and I think that, and I think that was seen as mm. an official safety valve that we were lucky that we had that safety valve that Greece and Spain, those countries, yes. were left with these extremely well, we high had unemployment. High immigration. Yeah, yeah, we just had that culture of it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now, um, Nicola Talland, few articles today in the papers about Ian Bailey and the decision not to extradite him to France, where they're going to hold a trial um, uh, for the the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Um, what did you think of that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the courts made the absolute right decision not not to extradite him. Um, their file has been to the DPP a few times in this country and there isn't essentially we have to be careful about yeah. what the DPP has yeah. come back with but it appears there isn't enough or any evidence to put him on trial. So if we have decided that in this country we don't hand a citizen over to the French to try them in a sort of a show trial situation with nothing more. Uh, I think a key point of the judgment was that the French have no no further evidence than is here, which is nothing. Yeah. I mean, I did a, a cold case kind of investigation into this some years ago when it all started coming back up. And I mean, there is it, it is a catastrophic investigation from the beginning when it comes to what happened down in West Cork after she was murdered. And, and what did happen? What went wrong? Well, I mean, look, she was she was left there. The they, they forensics were late coming down. There was I mean, there was seems to have been evidence gone missing. There's all sorts of stuff. It was just uh, fairly catastrophic from the beginning. And and Ian Bailey was certainly put in as a suspect. I think he actually put himself in as a suspect eventually, named himself. And he has just lived with that for the last 20 years. And then there was a case of a witness, Marie somebody. There was all that. Marie Farrell came up in his civil action and his civil action is currently being appealed. Marie Farrell was given incentives to to make statements against him which were false. I mean, it is an absolute disgrace what went on. And thankfully, this decision was made that our state did not hand him over to the French to be tried for murder when we can't do it It does seem odd to me, Eamon Delaney, that you can have a trial in another country where the crime was not committed. I don't understand how that even works. But apparently this is, the French have done this before. This is what they do. Yeah, it's a very different system of law. I mean, in many ways you're guilty until proven innocent, you know, as well as a principle. Um, Yeah, I would be very wary about an Irish citizen who's already been on trial has been cleared yeah. been sent over there I can understand the pain of the family and it was very eloquently put he, in a, he wasn't on trial he yeah was never he wasn't sorry, sorry, yeah, he wasn't on trial yeah. Yeah. yeah so he took the libel he action he took a civil yeah, yeah exactly yeah, um, yeah I mean it's it, yeah it's it's it would be it would be very, very you'd be very wary of it happening uh, no I just want to mention there was I didn't see it but apparently it was a very powerful documentary during the week in RTE by Philip Boucher Hayes um uh, on it, but but just echoing what Nicholas said, like this is another example. Of the Guardi, they do fantastic work and have done, and they face a paramilitary threat for twenty, thirty years. But there are a lot of cases like this where it's really just Keystone cops. You know, I remember well the body lying. I remember because it, it happened over Christmas, didn't it? Yeah, well, you see, it goes wrong at the beginning, and they have this in-depth ability to keep covering it up 
yeah. when it goes wrong in the beginning and they just keep keep supporting that wrong yeah. rather than putting their hands up some years later and saying actually do you know what we made a mistake there let's start afresh yeah, they will yeah. never admit no of course and and it's, yeah. a small example I know it's going to drag Jobstown into this but I do think it's uh, you know it, it's the Gardaí went in there and they all had this similar line which was not the right line and the judge directed that they should look at evidence and you know regardless of how one feels Paul Murphy behaved like this was this was outrageous and here's a weirdness with Leo flipping from one to the other he denounces Murphy one day and the other day he goes out and bravely says we need to answer questions to the Gardaí so that's what Nicholas is describing you keep to the line keep to the line and then the judge says no Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, Owen Harris referred to that Philip Boucher Hayes um, about Sophie um, that was on RT during the week Harry Brown it has struck me though can it be unjust sometimes that there are other uh, murders that have not been solved and uh, people that have gotten away with it but that what we had here was this charismatic victim sure. and a charismatic suspect Um uh, and that's why it has stayed afresh for so long. Well, there's also the international dimension of it. Um, there's the, oh, you know, mysteries, yeah, West Cork's yeah. the romance of the setting, if you yeah. like, uh, is yeah. part of the attraction. It's an awful, it's awful the way we still talk about it as though we're all playing detective games as yeah. well. It's a kind of a Cluedo uh, uh, conversation that we tend to have. And But I think that, and Gene Kerrigan has a very good piece in this Sunday Independent today, actually going through the evidence and non-evidence in this case. And it's exactly as my colleagues have been saying, here that, that you have a situation where guards decide what they think might have happened or what they think they can make stick or who they can make it stick to and everything after that goes to that. I mean sometimes they frame the right person. You know, yeah. I'm not saying anybody was framed in this yeah. situation, but yeah. I'm just saying that very often when that happens when a conclusion is reached, it uh, it so happens that it does correspond mm-hmm. to the actual events and to the evidence that is available. But uh, all too often it's a, it's a line. Mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes, I mean if we think of say the likes of the O.J. Simpson case, sometimes you may have the right person, but you've also gone about the case in such a way that you're not mm-hmm. going to win it. And because, you just have to yeah. accept that then. Yes. Um, look, we're coming to the end of the program. Perhaps we should give a mention to Vincent Brown. He's got so much coverage in the papers today. He even has his own supplement in the Sunday Business Post. With an introduction by the President, no less. Oh, yes. really? Oh, I haven't opened it. Oh, my God. Forward. A tribute to Vincent Brown by the President the of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. Uh, Nicola, so what do you think of Vincent Brown? Well, I think he was, or is, sorry, was. Take yeah, that back. Right, yeah. like, take that back. His first libel case against me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on his retirement, I think he was an incredibly dynamic media person. Um you know, many people fell to his wrath and were, you know, shouted at and bullied and all the rest of it. But he was one of those characters. And I was saying earlier, I worked in tabloid media in the UK under many of those characters, just massively uh, fireballs of personality. And that's what he was. And uh, personally, I found him hugely amusing, hugely entertaining. Um, I never worked for him, so was never shouted at by him or otherwise but uh, Harry did yeah. you ever work for him? At a distance at a distance I have to say my wife produced his radio program back in the 90s so oh, I have right. some sort of uh, and I, I just think that in, in the context of the tributes that it's sort of a footnote uh, but he made people's lives a living hell 
uh, is, I think, should possibly be larger mm. than just a footnote in the, the sorts the, of things. The Phoenix did a profile of him two weeks ago that went into more detail mm. on the huge turnover of producers and staff and, and uh, editors. veteran producers. That's what's really interesting. And Betty Purcell, who I'm sure she won't be mind men- yeah. mentioning her name, or Tom Fabozzi, yeah. uh, or... Um, Yvonne Nolan, sister of the, who does stuff on Arena and books. I mean, they're all tough, hard people. Uh, I would think of them, and, and uh, yeah, they just they, they don't even speak about it. But it's been ever does, you know. Um, uh, John Waters in his book Jiving in the Crossroads, which is a very old book now and a very amusing book of the time, the eighties in Ireland. He describes working with Vincent. He comes to a conclusion. I'm going to paraphrase here, and I'm sure also John, if he's listening, he wouldn't mind. It was saying the thing with Vincent is his genius just about outweighs the madness and it really is madness and I think that's a fair way because although I disagree with him on many things there was a volcanic energy and a charisma there which was and it's a pity TV came to him so late in life because I think if he had another 10 years younger or he'd be keeping going but Right. Well, farewell, uh, Vincent. And uh, we shall read your supplement later, Anthony Forward, by the President. That is it for my newspaper review panel this morning. Harry Brown, Eamon Delaney, Nicola Talent. Many thanks for joining me. Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.